0: Uh, As Arlen mentioned, my name is Josh, I am another one of the elders here at City Press, and I have the dubious honor of being up here to present the Word of God, to consider the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, In keeping with tradition, um, little theologians, little Christians, if you are still in here, also big Christians, big theologians, if you care to draw a picture, I want you to think about what is something that you absolutely love. Maybe it's something you like to eat, something you like to play, something you like to do, someone that you like to hang out with. What is something that you love? I want you to draw me a picture of that. And then I want you to think about what would it take for you to give that up? What would it take for you to not enjoy that thing forever? What would it take for you to say, eh, this doesn't really matter? And I want you to ask your parents that on the way home from church. What is something that they would not want to give up? And what would it take for them to give it up? So bring up your pictures after church. And I think I've heard rumors of prizes and we might hunt them down. But do bring me your pictures. I would love to see what you draw. I'd love to hear what you love. So this morning, we um, are returning to the book of 1 John. We've been kind of examining it in a periodical um, fashion over the last few months. Um, and, if, and if you can remember, this, this church that John is writing to, they've been through a good bit of turmoil. There have been a number of people who have left the church, seemingly, um, and they were teaching things that um, aren't in line with the gospel. They're not in line with the scriptures. They're not in line with what Christ taught, and they're not in line with what John told them that Christ taught. And so into this mess, John is writing this letter, and he, he, he has laid out kind of two primary purposes for why he's writing this letter. First, he wants them to be buoyed. He wants them to be lifted up. He wants their joy to be made complete. The second reason that John says that he is writing is for assurance. Uh, he wants to give them confidence in the knowledge of eternal life. And so we, we started with joy, we played a little bit with that idea, and then over the last few sermons we've talked more about assurance. And what does it mean to know that you know that you have eternal life? And so to that end, John has kind of given two tests, if you will. Uh, in the first part of the chapter, um, we, we looked with Arlen at this test of if you follow God's commandments, if you abide in the word of the Lord, then you know God and know that you have eternal life. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw with David that the second test was that of brotherly love. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. However, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so John has these two tests, these, these two tests as kind of an intention of, first, I want you, church, to examine yourself. To say, can I know that I have eternal life? Do I meet these criteria? But the second is kind of this you know, side-eye emoji. John's still looking at the people who have left the church and says, think about the test with them, too. Do they really meet these standards? There's a reason that I'm saying they're not preaching the gospel. They, they're not living up to these, these standards. And so John is keen to like reassure this church that, that they know, they can know that they have eternal life, that they know the Father. And so then we move into our passage today, beginning in verse 12. And if you look at your Bible, you'll see that our passage today has two distinct sections. The first chunk is 12 through 14. And in a lot of Bibles, it'll kind of set that part apart, um, kind of like it's like a, a, a psalm, like a song, or a hymn or something like that. And it certainly reads a bit like poetry um, with multiple stanzas and repetition. And I think we can kind of see John kind of sitting back and taking off his glasses I can't take my glasses off because it's holding my earpiece in place. Otherwise I would. (laughs) Uh, But John kind of taking off his glasses. and You know, he's this old man. He's probably 80 years old. And and he's looking at this church and saying, you know, I I need you to hear this church. I need you to believe this. I need you to make sure that you know this, that you are firm in understanding these truths. And then we'll see that he moves on from there into verse 15 and he he lays out his first actual imperative of the letter, do not love the world. But these first first three verses in 12 through 14 kind of lay out the affirmation of, church, you need to know this. You need to believe this. So look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children. Three times he says, I am Writing to you. And then beginning at the end of verse 13, I write to you. And then we also see the repetition of the addresses. I'm writing to you, little children. I write to you, children. I write to you, fathers. I am writing to you, fathers. Young men, in verse 13. Young men, in verse 14. And I think there's a couple things that we can see um, as we look at this kind of lyrical style of this poetic form. First, when John is addressing the children, we should read it in the same light as the first verse of chapter two. He writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's an old man, an old pastor, and he's addressing his flock. So he's using children, my little dear children, as an affectionate term for the whole congregation, not those who are actually children. But then, I think we can also break down the the two subsequent ones, fathers and young men, as perhaps two subsets of the congregation, but they're not meant to be exclusive sets, they're meant to be inclusive sets. For each of these truths that he articulates, they don't apply just to old men and just to young men, just to children, but they apply to all Christians. Little children, that's all of you. Remember this. But all of you older folks, don't just go nodding your head like, yeah, 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 I get that. You need to remember this too. You risk forgetting this. But you young ones, don't think this is just some state that you'll get to eventually. No, this applies to you now, today. Church, I think we have a tendency to over-apply the Scriptures when we shouldn't and under-apply the Scriptures when we should. And today, as we read these verses... I want you to have a clear understanding that each of you, if you are in Christ, these apply to you. These are clear and vital truths. And if you hear nothing else, I hope you would read, ponder, and rest in these truths today. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. John doesn't say will be forgiven or might be forgiven, but John uses the perfect tense. The forgiveness is complete. The forgiveness has already arrived. Now, that's not to say that we don't have an ongoing need for forgiveness. John just wrote in verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. There's an ongoing need for forgiveness. But here today... He's talking about the perspective taken from the cross, the perspective from eternity. The forgiveness is already won. Christ has already paid for your sins. Little children, your sins are forgiven. But not just that, they are forgiven for his name's sake. Friends, the assurance of this forgiveness rests upon Christ for his name's sake. Do you know that you are forgiven? It isn't because we trust in what we have done, what you have done. There's nothing meritorious, nothing good within us that we can earn our forgiveness. But we aren't left floundering and wondering and hoping that at the time, end of time, God might possibly be merciful. No, my friends. We aren't dealing with a capricious and arbitrary an inconstant God. Our forgiveness is premised. It is based upon the work of Christ that has already been completed. Brothers and sisters, little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's the first great doctrine that John wants to set firmly in our minds. Secondly, he says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, like it in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the father There's a whole lot of things that we could say about this but at the very least I think we need to see that John is reassuring the church that they have met the conditions of the tests of assurance that we already talked about earlier in chapter 2. Chapter 1 verse 6 says if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. Church you know him you have fellowship with him. Unlike those who are, you know, preaching the gospel, this false gospel, who claim to have this special esoteric knowledge and understanding. You, church, John is saying, you, church, you know him who gave you this message. And if you know him, you walk in the light. Moreover, verse 4 of chapter 2, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. I write to you, children, because you know the Father Again, church, you know the Father, you know him, and you have fellowship with him. As one preacher put it, this is the blessed knowledge that every Christian must have, a knowledge of God, not opposed to us and hates us, imposing these commandments upon us, but God as Father, God who loves us with an everlasting love, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, fathers, remember, children, remember, church, you know him. You know him, you have an intimate relationship, you have a personal relationship. You don't just have special knowledge, you know a person, you know him who is from the beginning. Third, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Again, John uses the perfect tense, you have overcome the evil one. It's not you can, you will, you might overcome, you have overcome the evil one. Do you remember the scene in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli show up at the halls of Theoden and Theoden is this decrepit, grimy, cringeworthy old man just sitting on his throne. He looks like he's 250 and it's just gnarly, and it's you know intended to be these physical manifestations of this lies and deceit that this advisor Wormtongue has been speaking into his ears. And you know Gandalf walks into the room, and before you know Gandalf has done anything, before he's even undone the the, the words of Wormtongue, he you already get the sense that like the battle is done. Like everyone's looking around, thinking like, oh, we know where this is going. We know how this is going to end up. Gandalf is in the building, Wormtongue is already defeated, Theoden will be restored. And in that that kind of light, friends, I think we need to see that Christ is in the building, Satan has already been defeated. There's still work to be done, Satan's lies and corruptions will still have an effect, the final defeat is yet to come, Wormtongue will be thrown out, but right now we are living in the now. Now. Christ is in the building. The evil one has been overcome. Moreover, you are strong. You're not strong independent of this victory. You are strong in this victory, not by the strength of your own will and knowledge and power, but because the word of God dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, the word of God abides in you, making you strong, to defeat sin and the devil. You have overcome the evil one. These then are the three basic truths that every Christian must recall and remember. These are our strong reassurances that the John, the pastor, lovingly wrote for each of us, that our sins are forgiven for his name's sake, that Christ's victory over sin and the devil gives us the ability to overcome sin and that we know God the Father and God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. Church, if you hear nothing else today, remember to rest in these doctrines. Well, we run short on time already, so we quickly turn now to verse 15. We see here the first imperative of John's letter. Do not love the world or the things in the world, Given the verses 12 through 14, because of John's kind words of assurance and reminder, there's a strong sense that John's not rebuking the church for their actions, but is gently pastorally guiding and reminding them of something that he thinks could be a strong temptation for them. One commentator frames it as the praise of verses 12 to 14 give the subsequent imperative a positive ring of promise and not a negative sting of censure. My friends, it is in that light that I want to examine these verses as well. There's a whole lot here that we need to consider. And there's a whole lot that I think will challenge you and me in this day and age. But we consider them in the context as beloved, forgiven, strong men and women who know him who is from the beginning. So church, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the world? What does John mean when he says, do not love the world? I think it's one of those questions that, you know, if you first ask someone, oh yeah, I know what the world is, but then when you try to actually answer it, it's a little bit more opaque. What is the world? How would you answer that? What's the world that John is saying we must not love? I want to break it down in this way. First, we'll examine what the world is not Then we will examine what the world is. And finally, we will look at some of the application and incentive for not loving the world. So first, what the world is not. Do not love the world. Perhaps the most famous words that John wrote come in his gospel, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that sense, the world would describe all of humanity. Or perhaps if uh, we have some strong Calvinists in here, we could just say it's just the elect. But regardless, the world would then describe people, the people of the world. But that really doesn't seem what John is meaning here in his use of world. It's not the case that God loves the world and we are called not to love the world. So the world in John 1-2 is not referring generally and collectively to humanity. Another thing that the world is not is merely the physical world. John's not calling the church to hate the mountains and the streams, the food and books, cars and buildings, the things of this world. Because remember how John began this letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. John began his letter saying the gospel became embodied Christ Himself, God, came down in flesh. He took on matter. And we saw it, we heard it, we touched it. Christ is fully physical, fully material. John's not saying to avoid loving this physical universe. In fact, our Christian faith, I think, holds that the physical universe is in a much higher regard than many other religions. After Christ's burial and resurrection, He comes to His disciples. And what does He say? He says, Give me a fish. Give me something to eat. He pays this huge compliment to the physical world. Most religions wouldn't dare to have God enter in this world. He's too great. He's too big. He's too holy. But God condescends to put on flesh and enter into our world. And here we have Jesus in a resurrected body, having defeated death. And we don't get just a spiritual embodiment, but Jesus says, I'm hungry. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's why at the end of time, when God renews and redeems all of creation, a physical reality, it will be the new heavens and the new earth, a new physical reality as well as a spiritual one. God made the physical world, and it was good. And that's why John began his letter with this apologetic for the physical world. There were those who were teaching otherwise, the, 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 what we've called the proto-Gnostics, who want to teach that the, the physical universe was evil, that it was to be transcended, that it didn't matter at all. But John says, no, God came down in embodied matter. He came that we might feel and see and hear him. Friends, this is our gospel, not a hyper-spiritual, unembodied, special knowledge but a fully embodied, fully spiritual God with whom we are called into personal knowledge. Each one of us is called into that relationship with him. So when John says, do not love the world, he is not counseling in some Gnostic fashion against loving the physical world, against hating the evil of matter. I think there's a number of other senses in which world is used in the scripture, but I think it might be helpful to turn now to how John does intend us to understand world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the imperative. But that follows with, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the antithesis. If we love the world, we can't love the Father. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is John's clarification, his uh, definition If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the first thing that the love of the world is, is whatever casts out, whatever inhibits, whatever impedes our love for God the Father. This calls to mind Jesus' teaching. You cannot love love both God and money or mammon. We all worship something. for We are worshiping creatures. But worship of God, love of God, is exclusive. It's in the same way that if I love my wife, that necessarily is exclusive of the love of all others. I love you, therefore I don't love those. God says you shall have no other gods before me. You can't add to his worship the worship of the Baals or the worship of the idols. Your love of me is exclusive. It casts out. It inhibits the love of these lesser things. And the flip The converse is if you love those lesser things, if you go after the Baals and the idols, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love of the world is love of whatever does not cause us to love God more. But he clarifies it further. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but, but, father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh and the desires of eyes and the pride of life. The word "their desire, can also be translated in some of your Bibles, I'm sure, is translated as lust, the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh. A different way to translate it might be over-desire, epithymia. Epi, meaning over, the over-desire of the flesh, the over-desire of the eyes. Because what we've already seen is that food and drink, they're not bad. They were created to sate a desire. They were created for our enjoyment. The desire for food is not bad. But when it becomes an over-desire, when it becomes a lust, that is when we are pulled from the love of the Father. So what does it mean to lust after something, to lust after food, to lust after sex, to over-desire a new car, a new position? The initial desire isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when that desire becomes a requirement, that's when we allow ourselves to be controlled by that desire. That's when it becomes an over-desire. Tim Keller puts it this way, is it, it is okay to eat, to live, but we mustn't live to eat it's okay to eat to live but we mustn't live to eat when you live to play that is an overdesire when you live for sex that is an overdesire so functionally what we are doing is allowing a good thing to become an ultimate thing we are allowing whatever that thing is however good it may be in and of itself to replace god as ultimate in our lives and therefore we are over desiring it we are lusting after it all that is in the world, the lusts, the over-desires of the flesh, and the lusts, the over-desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's the pride of life? Or pride of possessions. I think our ESV translation has pride of possessions. I think that might give us a little bit better sense, but I think it doesn't really encompass all of what we're seeing with Life. If we understand life to be all that someone has, all the things they have, all the things that they do, all the things that, um, all the power that they have, all the positions that they hold, the, you know, the strata of society in which they live, these, pride in these is the pride of life, pride of possessions. And all of this is wrapped up in self-sufficiency. Look at all this comfort that I have earned. Look at all this wealth that I have accumulated. Look at all the ways that I'm able to command my own life and destiny. Again, this is not from God, but from the world. We love the created things rather than the creator. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's hopefully summarized as two lusts and one vaunt, two forms of deprivation arising from our needs and one from our possessions. Unholy desire for things one has not and unholy pride for things one has. Unholy desire for things one has not and an unholy pride in things one has. Brothers and sisters, what does your life look like? What does that look like in your life? How are you loving the world rather than loving God? I think the temptation is to look out there, to see people who are buying a new car, moving into a new house, getting a new position and job and see, ah, I see them. They are lusting after the things of the earth. I see them having pride in life. But what are you over-desiring? What is the lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes? What is the thing or position that you would have in which you would take so much pride? Church, do not love the world or the things of the world. Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, captures the bleakness, this meaninglessness of our love of the world. I met a traveler from an antique land, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my work, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. This is, friends, the pride of life. And what remains Nothing beside remains. The lone and level sands stretch far away. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This, my friends, is John's application. How do you know world love? How do you know worldliness? by looking through the lens of eternity. Will all that you are desiring, all that you have pride in, be buried beneath the sands of time? Will your pursuit of comfort, will your desire for indulgence, your bigger house, your new car, your lusts of the flesh, your lusts of the eye, will they stand up to the test of time? Nothing beside remains. The lone and level sands stretch far away. I think, I think we often end up asking the wrong question. We ask ourselves, can can I buy this? Can Can I move there? Can I indulge in this and still love God? We're towing the line. When I was a teenager, I was given the helpful advice about dating. If you're asking the question, how far can you go and not be sinful, you're asking the wrong question because you're oriented in entirely the wrong direction. I think similarly, if we are asking, how worldly can I get? How much can I love the world and get away with it? We're asking the wrong question. Rather, we need to be asking, how can I love God? How can I love God more? So, church, I ask you this how can you love God more? Have you heard of Lilius Trotter? Uh, the, the Ruskin School of Art is Oxford University's school for, well, art. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and it's named after John Ruskin, who's perhaps one of the famous, most famous artists in the 18th century. He was a you know, celebrity of his time, hugely pivotal in shaping and guiding the art world. And John Ruskin once wrote this of Lilius Trotter. She would be the greatest living painter in Europe and do things that would be immortal. Have you heard of Lilius? She grew up in a well to do family in England. She enjoyed all the comfort and the accoutrements of that, waking up to a servant with tea and touring Europe with her family. Her acquaintance with Ruskin, in fact, came because she and her mother were staying in the same hotel in Venice as Ruskin, and as any good mother might do, she, uh, Lilius' mother asked Ruskin, hey, my daughter has some skill at painting, would you please take a look at her paintings? It'd be like you coming across Steven Spielberg and saying, hey, can you look at my kid's movie script? Um, and Ruskin, you know, he... he said, ah, sure, yes, yes, I'll take a look. And he was so astounded by Lilius' natural ability that he decided to take take her under his tutelage. And at one point, he um, took a series of her paintings and would bring them before his classes at Oxford, saying, you will, in examining them beyond all telling, feel that they are exactly what we should all like to be able to do. Friends, this is Lilius Trotter, a woman in a man's world, brought into the teaching and under the esteem of one of the greatest in the art world at the time, one who could do things that would be immortal. Have you heard of Lilius Trotter? Why don't we see Trotters in the museum alongside Van Gogh's and Monet's and Manet's? She lived at the same time, she had the skill. I posit, friends, it's because Lilius asked the question, how can I love God more? You see, Lilius loved her painting, but she loved the poor and the destitute more. She followed the greatest commandment to love God and to love her neighbor. At first, she worked with the poor and the prostitutes in London, loving them dearly, even at the expense of her artistic endeavors, Ruskin lamenting that she wasn't spending enough time and energy on her art. But again, Elias asked, how can I love God more? And in asking that question, she forsake her comfy life in England and all of the status and all of the wealth that she had and moved to Algeria. The missions board wouldn't even send her because they were too worried that her Victorian woman sensibilities would be disgruntled moving to Algeria. So she spent her own money, boarded a ship, and moved to Algeria for the last 40 years of her life. Friends, this is Lilius Trotter. She forsook... Something good for something better. It's not bad to be a painter. It's not worldly, necessarily, to seek to capture beauty in paint. In fact, I think Lilius could have perhaps had a wonderful, godly impact on her work on the world. But for Lilius, the question was not through the lens of the temporal, not on what would waste away in the desert, but what was eternal What was loving God more? So friends, how can you love God? How can you love God more? Let's pray. God, you have given us the great assurance through John's words of our forgiveness according to the work done already on the cross. You have assured us that we are strong because your word abides in us and we have overcome the devil. You have assured us that we know the Father. We know him who was from the beginning. God, remind us of this. Remind us of the living embodiment of this truth, that these are not mere facts to remember, but this is life-altering, life-changing relationships that allow us to ask the question, how can I love you more? Grant us mercy, grant us grace to seek to love you more, to seek to love you and your holiness all the more. Pray that you would shape our lives around this. In your name we pray. Amen.